Now, normally, I have something in the pantry, in the freezer, in the refrigerator that I can make into an emergency meal, but it was Sunday. I'd been running hard all weekend. I hadn't had time to prepare to grocery shop or to even think about food. I knew the cupboards were bare, and we had guests that we had invited for Sunday dinner. Um, although it was gonna have to be a lunch because there is absolutely no way a Sunday dinner would be on the table. Um, I had a meeting after church. In the few moments in between everything, I tried to be creative. I tried to think of what bits and pieces I could pull together like a chopped chef. I tried to um, think about what I had. I drew an utter and total blank. And finally, I texted Robert. I said, SOS, can you stop by the store on your way home and get something to eat, and then can you fix it for us because I'm coming in late. And so my wonderful husband put on his fixer hat, and we had a beautiful meal of hot dogs and chips and, uh, and uh, potato salad, carrots. And no one went hungry. Has something like this ever happened to you? Where you had to think about what you were going to feed people and you had nothing to work with? It sure happened to the disciples. They had to come up with a way to feed thousands of people. We're going to read about it today in John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. I feel like we have to pause here at verse 6 in this passage to set the scene. Jesus was actually looking for a little peace and quiet, a time out with his disciples to recharge. He'd been crushed by crowds day after day. He was on a nonstop tour of teaching and preaching and healing. Mark and Matthew put this event right after John the Baptist's death. John the Baptist dies, Jesus withdraws. So he was grieving. He didn't want people around him. He had to pray. He had to feel. He had to de decompress. So picture Jesus and his disciples sitting on the mountain as they look down and they see a crowd start to make its way up the mountain. We'll find out in a few verses that it was 5,000 men, which means it was probably at least double if women and children were to be counted. What does 10,000 people climbing a mountain look like? It looks like I, sh I would be running away is what that looks like to me. It takes time to climb a mountain, so Jesus has time for this conversation. And I wonder why did Philip get chosen for this test? Was he the logistics and operations manager of the group? Someone had to take care of feeding and sheltering the disciples. Maybe that was Philip. I wonder if the other disciples weren't secretly relieved that they didn't get picked. The test question was, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? 
Now, I know from experience that's a bad feeling. A bad feeling to have an empty pantry, to not have a plan, to not have a store in sight, to not have the money to buy food. Verse 7, Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. You see, Philip thought he was in project management mode. He thought this was a word problem in a math class. So he immediately starts counting and calculating. He picked the cheapest food item possible that was a little loaf of bread. And if they had been, you know, that was their culture. If they had been in Asia, it would have been a little bit of rice. If they had been in Mexico, it would have been a little bit of beans. He, he picked what, what would feed the most people. He calculated the take-home pay of an average laborer. Maybe it was what he himself earned before he started following Jesus. And he couldn't make the math work. He couldn't make the money that they didn't even have stretch far enough to buy enough bread from a store that they weren't even near. It's impossible. It could never happen. Philip got the magnitude of the problem right, but he flunked the test. And aren't you glad? I'm always delighted when the disciples flunk uh, because I see that their instinct is often mine. And Philip's instinct is often ours when we see, we can see ourselves through him and we can learn from him. We count our resources. We gather our money together. We look at our bank balances. We work through a problem. Fixers want to fix. But this wasn't about math. This was about an impossibility when Jesus was present in their midst. And therefore, it's about faith. One of the other disciples decides to jump in, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has, a, has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Now, this is a different perspective. Uh, what is this little food with the thousands who are walking up the mountain? That keeps the impossibility in the forefront of, of the problem. But Andrew bought, brought the boy to Jesus. Now, Andrew was the connector of the disciples. He's done this before. The first we know about him, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And when Jesus walked by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, look, here is the Lamb of God. And Andrew and another disciple of John went and followed Jesus. And within hours of that meeting with Jesus, Andrew went back to his house, got his brother Simon Peter and said, look, we found the Messiah, come and see him, and brought Peter to the Messiah. So Andrew knew from experience that bringing people to Jesus puts the ball in Jesus' court. Now, now it's up to Jesus to do something about that. He already knows that Jesus changes lives because the Messiah already changed his. So Andrew does what he can do, he does it well, and now it's up to Jesus to work. Verse 10, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down about 5,000, it's actually 5,000 men in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments, of the five barley loaves, 
Left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We are in a sermon series entitled Jesus Through the Eyes of. And today we're looking at not the disciples, not the crowd, but the little boy who brought his food to Jesus. What was he thinking about all of this? And what do we know about him from this brief mention? Now the boy brought his own lunch. Apparently the rest of the crowd did not think to bring food. Do you ever eat your popcorn before the movie starts? I feel like I would have been at the bottom of the mountain eating, eating my stuff, and then I would have gotten up there with nothing left in my pockets. But this boy had a lunch that was enough for himself plus a little bit more to, more to share. Barley bread was peasant food. It was ordinary, dark, daily bread, the cheapest bread available that poor people used to fill their belly. The loaves were not footlongs. They were much smaller. I have put some loaves, five loaves and two fish out here. Have you noticed it on the communion table? Good. I put it out there because my idea was that then the whole room would smell of fish and we would be in the moment of, you know, we would be there on the mountain. But um, the people singing had to put it away while they were singing because it overpowered them and it doesn't go back far enough. So there's my, there's my idea. That was about the size of a barley loaf right there. And they were more like buns. One portion for a person would be about three loaves of that bread. So he had three loaves, two fish, he had a little extra, and this boy was generous. This boy was generous. A family favorite story is that when my daughter Lauren was a toddler, we'd ask her to share her food. Can I have a, a chip, we'd ask her, and she'd take a chip, and she'd say, oh yes, she'd share. That was about the portion. Can you, can you see it even from the back? This crumb of skimpiness, uh oh, now I need some water to get that down. I'm calling this chip mentality because the focus is on the chips and on what you want. And the focus is not on the person standing in front of you not understanding that the connection, the flow of love that comes as a result of sharing freely is one of the joys of being generous. Now Andrew brought the boy to Jesus. The adults are standing around talking about his lunch. When he handed it over, did he think he was going to get a piece of it? Or did he think that the important people like Jesus and the disciples would divide it amongst themselves. What did he think about Jesus? Maybe he was watching the disciples and maybe there was something about Jesus that touched him. Surely knowing what we know about Jesus and kids, there was some kind of a personal interaction, don't you think, between Jesus and this boy? 
There had to have been, as he handed his lunch to Jesus. We can't know what he was thinking, but that impulse to share with Jesus brought about a, a miracle. This boy is a minor and seemingly insignificant character in scripture, in scripture. But in this revelation of Jesus, of who Jesus is as the giver of physical and spiritual bread, this boy is a central character in that. And no one in that crowd thought that boy mattered for much except maybe his parents. And no one imagined that what he brought in his little basket would not only be provision of the moment, but the basis of one of the most significant sermons Jesus ever preached. Jesus took that lunch and did the impossible. A crowd of thousands was satisfied with an abundance, overabundance, our scripture says, of physical food. And simultaneously, that miracle pointed to the eternal source of spiritual food that satisfies the soul, Jesus Christ. Jesus did that miracle through an unremarkable kid in the middle of a very big crowd. And when that boy packed his lunch that morning, he had no idea his basket held something that big. This boy's generosity is a witness to us today. We, who must learn faith, just as the first disciples did, this is some of what we learn from this boy. God wants us for his mission. Jesus wants us for his mission. Now, mind you, God does not need our resources to accomplish his mission. Jesus didn't actually need the boy's lunch. Even the devil knew that Jesus could turn what into bread? Yeah, rocks, stones. God does not need our plans. He's got much bigger and better plans of his own. Amazingly, he invites all of us to participate in his plan, in his salvation goals. And no matter how insignificant we feel, and even though we shake our heads in mystified wonder at that plan that would use us, that is God's plan to want us for his mission. I've always had a list of reasons in my mind as to why I should not be a pastor. And those lists of disqualifications don't seem to matter to God. And true to the biblical narrative, this boy follows a long and tried pattern of God preferring the unqualified, the weak, the too old or the too young, the differently abled, the female, the foreigner, the outsider, the too sinful for his purposes. God wants us. And secondly, Jesus wants faith from us. Jesus asked a silly question, really, because he wanted faith, not a solution. So think about the crowd of 10,000 surging up the mountain, and then think about the five loaves and the two fish in the lunch basket, easily held in one hand. Holding on to the lunch for oneself is an act of self-preservation. Giving it up is an act of faith. And God requires that we trust that he is in control and empty our hands, take our hands off of it. God requires us to trust him that he will bring about his purposes, that he will care 
for all of our needs, both physical and emotional and spiritual. The boy had to release what he possessed. He had to settle in his heart and his mind that that food was not his to hold on to. He was not the one who was going to say how it was going to be distributed. He gave it all to Jesus. He put everything he had in his hands into the hands of Jesus. And this is a lesson that we learn over and over again, don't we? As we find a new challenge in life, which rocks us. And then we've got to say, well, I'm giving control back to Jesus. And that boy shows us. Jesus requires self-sacrifice. It was a really long hike up the mountain. Was the boy hungry? Did he have doubts as to his helpfulness? Did he wonder if his own needs would be met? Now, the scenario crossed my mind that if I was the boy, that I would sneak one loaf for myself. Now, I know you guys are not, not that kind of person, but it occurred to me that maybe I could get one loaf, just a little one for myself. I would, I would not even give, I, I wouldn't take the fish, the, although I have to think, you know, protein, I need some protein. I'd have the thought, but I'd leave the fish. I'd leave the fish because there's two of them and it would be kind of obvious. But I'd think about that one little loaf that wouldn't be missed that much. And my hand could have slipped in and out of that basket really fast. And then I could have handed over the basket. I can see a lot of kids doing that, and adults. That chip mentality abounds not only in kids, you know. But that would be flunking the test also. Because sacrificial giving shapes the giver's heart and allows for a greater flow of love both ways, from self to Jesus, and then from Jesus back to self. None of that would have happened without that sacrificial giving. If we are self-serving, it really doesn't allow our hearts to be shaped or our faith to be increased. But it's a very uncomfortable place to be in where you give everything, the whole, all the loaves, all the fish. Uncomfortable, it leaves us stripped, it leaves us dependent on Jesus. But an interesting thing happens when we put all we have into the hands of Jesus, then our hands are hmm, empty, ready to receive what Jesus is going to give back to us. We can't receive from Jesus if our hands are clutching, right? Because Jesus always, always outgives us. And I don't believe the boy would have gotten a blessing if he had kept some back for himself. But think of the reward. The boy is up front with Jesus. He's seeing the multitudes be seated, and he's watching everyone, 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 including himself, fed off of his little lunch. He had a good vantage point. The boy would have seen and heard Jesus talk to his father before the meal. I always wanted to hear, what did that sound like to hear Jesus pray to the father? 
he would have seen Jesus bless and then break the bread. And I don't know if you caught it when we read it through, but our passage implies that Jesus himself distributed the bread and the fish, and then he instructs the disciples to get the leftovers. It's kind of weirded in that way where you see Jesus as the one who gives the bread. The disciples participate in the miracle, but Jesus is the one who gives the bread. This feeding could not have happened through human effort. The people were fed by Jesus. And the boy would have seen this, have a good view of it. And he would, he would have a good view of everybody putting their hand in and coming out with bread, one after another, after another, after another. He would have seen with his own eyes the impossible happening. Many people have noticed that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first miracle was, tur was turning the water into wine. And here in John, it's three chapters later, Jesus is feeding the people bread that is broken with his own hands. And we see in these two miracles a foretaste of communion. But the people who experienced it in the day fixated on the physical miracle. After the feeding, Jesus withdrew from the crowd, went back, went across the sea, tried to get away. But people are sneaky. People are so sneaky. They sleuthed out his whereabouts and came back for more bread the next day. And the memo said, don't bring lunch. Lunch will be provided for you. But this second day, Jesus does not feed the people. They were hungry. I know they were hungry because they came expecting to be fed. But he does not feed them physical food. And instead, he uses the feeding of the day before to talk about himself as the bread of life. And he says some awful things, awful things, like, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, now he's going into territory I don't even want to imagine. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those are incomprehensible words without faith. To put it another way, you can only understand Jesus, the bread of life, with faith. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And with that one sermon, Jesus winnowed down the crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of people to a handful of disciples. That's a sermon for you. Only two or three left. Everybody else leaves. It's one thing to have faith when you can't believe your eyes because the laws of nature are being suspended by the power of God. But it's another thing to have faith in what your eyes can never see, that Jesus is the bread of life, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. Jesus never promised that we would receive every physical intervention that we pray for. I pray for them every day. Healings, money, uh, job opportunities. I pray for physical things to happen every day. And he doesn't promise that he'll give it to us. But he does promise that he will give eternal life to all who receive it from him. So what do you hunger for? 
Why don't you close your eyes just for a second? What do you hunger for down deep? Can you put your finger on it? It might be right there, first thing you think of. Other people may have to dig a little bit deeper. What do you hunger for? We're going to let Jesus know that. Just tell Jesus right now in that moment of silence. Tell him what you hunger for. I guess this is what the boy with the lunch shows us. Before the miracle, with no promise of a miracle, when the physical miracle pointed to a spiritual truth that was hardest to understand, in all situations, choose faith. Choose faith. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, you heard our silent prayers. And uh, some of those things that we brought to you are so tangled up, so deep, Lord Jesus. Some of those things have to do with our sense of self, of who we are. And some of those have to do with longings that we've had for a long time. Some of those have to do with grief and loss. Well, you know, Jesus, what, what our hunger is. You know better than we know what our hunger is. So I ask you, Jesus, to listen to our longings with your heart of love. And I ask you to feed our hunger and our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.